Injustice often creates what I refer to as a constellation of harms. Harm can be understood as a physical, social, psychological, or emotional injury that results from individual, collective, or societal wrongdoing, whether such wrongdoing is intentional or unintentional. A constellation of harm consists of a network of interconnected and often interdependent sources of harm that constitute or exacerbate a larger injustice. Like the stars in a constellation, some harms may be larger or more visible, while others are less perceptible but still present. Sometimes a series of smaller harms contributes to a larger injustice. Other times, a larger injustice creates a series of smaller harms. This is my Black Book Journal. Black Book Journal powered by Act Justly Love Mercy. My Black Book Journal explores the Black experience through book reviews and interviews to uncover lessons in life, love, and leadership. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Ali Henney about her book, I Won't Shut Up, You All. We had a fantastic interview. We did it a couple months ago, right before her book came out. Her book is now available, so I would recommend that you all go check it out. Please enjoy this episode. Before we get in, if you're enjoying, if you follow us on Apple or uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast, um, if you're following us on Apple Podcasts, make sure that you rate, subscribe, and leave a review as well. Leave a positive review for me if you don't mind, if you enjoy listening to my Black Book Journal. You can also follow me on Substack at dannybjr.substack.com. Again, that's dannybjr.substack.com at Act Justly Love Mercy. All right, you all, within that, without any further ado, we're going to go ahead and jump into today's episode. Hope you enjoy. And today I have joining me Miss Allie Henney, who wrote the book, I Won't Shut Up, Finding Your Voice When the World Tries to Silence You. You all go ahead and welcome our guest, Allie. How are you doing this afternoon? How are things going for you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's good. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you on my Black Book Journal. I really enjoy reading your book. I'm excited about having the opportunity to dive into it. So uh, I just want you to know, whenever we invite a guest on, we always take time at the beginning and have them walk us through their journey of how they got to this point in their lives. So I would love for you to take a moment and share how you got to this point in your journey. So how I got, how I got to the point of writing my book? Is that, is that specific? Well, just this point in your career. Oh, goodness. So, yeah, well, I'll let, the, I'll <laughs> let my book kind of talk about um, how I got to this point in my journey of, of my career. But as far as writing a book, um, it had been something that several of my friends were like, you know, you really should write a book. You know, you've got some thoughts, you've got some things. And I knew that maybe I would write a book. I was thinking, you know, like maybe I would write a fiction book, you know, self-publish on Amazon or even just uh, being being a, a blogger, even though I don't write on my blog nearly enough. Um, but then also um writing and stuff on social media on my Facebook page and stuff that was that has sort of been my outlet I was also in seminary at the time 
So I was doing a lot of academic writing. And so that was sort of um, just my, where I was with writing, even though it had always uh, been a passion of mine. But a, a few different friends and even people who didn't, who didn't know one another were like, you know, you should, you should think about writing a book. And so then um, I had several literary agents, um, all from the, from the same publishing house, not the publishing house that my, that my book was published with, but um, from, a, from a different publishing house. Within a few months, I had several different acquisitions agents approach, like fill out the contact form on my, on my website, approach me and be like, we, we, we enjoy your writing. Would you think about sending some samples? Have you thought about writing a book? Do you have a book deal? Blah, 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 blah. And so I just was kind of like, yeah, okay, like whatever. But I was like, okay, you know, this is something, since this has come out of the blue, I'll think about it. I talked to a few people. They were like, yeah, you know, this is, this seems like a, like a thing, you know, you should, you should try it. So, um, I was like, well, I'll, I had a, have a good friend who has published before. And so she was like, at the very least you should put together a proposal. And so I had started thinking about a concept and had started, uh, writing a little bit, had started thinking, mostly thinking around the concept and, had to, and in 2019, um, I decided I'm going to go ahead. I, I had been through some things, and some of those things uh, were were highlighted in the book. And I had been through some things, and so I was like, you know what? I'm going to sit down and I'm going to and I'm going to start writing. And so I started writing. And at this point, I didn't have a literary agent. I didn't have I, I didn't have a book deal. I hadn't um, done anything really with with any of these acquisitions agents who would who would approach me or anything like that, and so I had been working on this proposal kind of off and on a little bit, and then um, my my current literary agent um, actually contacted me, uh, got a hold of my contact form. Uh, she I knew that I recognized her name because she also had followed me on Twitter. And I think that that maybe had responded to a couple things or there. I just, or maybe had liked some things, but I just, I recognized her name. And so I was like, oh, okay. You know, this isn't somebody that's from a publishing house that's contacting me. This is somebody else. And I had been wanting to, to have, to go the route of having a literary agent rather than just me being um, out here by myself trying to figure out how to publish a book. And so I met with her, and at first I was thinking, like, and I, and I told her this. She she knows this. Um, her name's her name's Trinity. She's a white girl, and I knew this whenever we had sat down to meet. And so I was thinking, okay, this white girl wants a book about <laughs> wants to see what the what this black social justice person is saying. Okay, whatever. So I sat down with her, and I'm like, "Okay, white girl, like, what's going on?" I mean, like, I, I did like, say, "Okay, white girl," to her, but I'm thinking, like, <laughs> "Okay, white girl, like, what, what are you, what do you have here?" And she, you know, made the case for why she should be my agent. Um, she asked to see. I think before we had met, I had sent her what I had of a proposal. She read what I what so the chapters and stuff that I had. She was like, "Oh my goodness, we like we've got to do this. We've got to try to get you a deal." Blah 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 blah. And so I was skeptical at first, but 
once we kind of got into it, once I started listening to her, listening to the things that, that, that some of her, some of her ethos, um, and being an agent, et cetera, et cetera, why, why she, um, had, had pursued me and several other people, mutual, mutual friends and stuff, um, people, people that I knew, I was like, okay, let's, let's give this a whirl. She's, and she's been, um, she's been really great. That really had been how this book sort of sort of came into into being was the was the culmination of friends and then just different people just kind of showing up on my doorstep and being on my on my figurative uh, doorstep and being like hey you should write a book and, and it, that doesn't happen um, that way for everybody I've had a few people actually approach me um, and be like you know yeah how did you do this how did you do that it's like I feel like that my path toward this is a, is a bit unconventional um so yeah but that's but that's how i ended up here yeah thank you so much for sharing that journey with us and taking the question in that direction because in your book you actually speak about a little bit about that process of 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 kind of finding your voice but also the process of your social media engagement um we don't necessarily have to go into that right now but you speak a little bit about how you deciding to not quiet yourself led to you staying engaged on social media, led to you doing that, which eventually led you to this book project. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. And you talk, you talked a little bit about how, at the beginning of your question, how people will need to read the book to understand how you got to this point in your career, which kind of takes us, takes us to your book, I Won't Shut Up, uh, because you break it down into three separate acts, right? Um, and with a few intermissions in between. And that first act really focuses on your upbringing, your family and your broader community. Why was it important for you to tell your early upbringing and your experiences in your school and in your community in this book? That's a great question. For me, it was about how those early, um, those formative experiences that I had growing up in a small, predominantly white rural town in Missouri, um, that is formative to who I am as a, as a person. Um, my, my early experiences with racism, my early, my early experiences, um, even just with my self understanding within my family, because even the book, the book starts with, um, the early chapters start with me talking about some of my interaction within, within my family. And in particular, um, my grandmother who was diagnosed with cancer, um, whenever I was 10, 11 years old, like it's about 11 years old. And then um, she passed away whenever I was 12. And so some of the things that came from that cancer diagnosis, some of the experiences that I had that created uh, what I refer to as a, as a constellation of harms, that it's, mm-hmm. it's this thing where whenever something, whenever something bad or unjust happens, it doesn't just, that those things don't happen in a vacuum. They they pile up. They can they compound. They they can they can create uh, what I what it looks like. It seems like a constellation in the sky. Like they're, like they're all like all these. If you look up at the sky, you see you know the Big Dipper, or you see Cassiopeia, or you see if you can see if you're far enough south and you can see Draco the dragon there toward the mm-hmm. toward the bottom of the of the night sky. All of those things that like those stars. They seem like they're just out there, but in our in our human consciousness and our minds, we've we've pulled those things together and they and they orient us in a way. And once you 
have the ability to recognize constellations in the sky, the sky doesn't the sky doesn't look the same. And so some of these things that that happened that I that I experienced early in life, both with racism, but then also just within within my family stemming uh, from my from my grandmother's illness, it gave me an acute awareness of injustice and what injustice looks like and how injustice can compound over over time and create it seems like something something small um something something small like you know my grandmother how many ever years ago it was picking up her first cigarette uh, my grandmother died of lung cancer <laughs> you know her picking up her first um cigarette at you know the age of like 15 or something like that 15 20 something something like in, in that uh in that age range um that one small decision created a bunch of other instances that then led to her getting sick that then led to some other things and then led me to where i i am today i believe and so it was just important for me to share that and to give people some of the context um for me for who i am but then also for people to be able to see the ways that racism manifests in small town life in predominantly white small town midwestern um small town not not southern um tell and telling those those stories because i often i think that the stories of um rural black people or even suburban black people there's some inner being rural and being suburban um those are different experiences but there are some there are a lot of overlap in those experiences and I think that sometimes those stories whenever we think about blackness we tell urban stories and we tell stories of we tell we tell urban stories in the north we tell urban stories that are kind of in the south or rural southern stories but that are like it's just it's a different type of story than rural southern stories are different than what there's overlap again but it's different than what i came up with so i felt like it was just important it was important to for me to include all those things um at the beginning so you have some context for who i am and where i'm coming from and then how i see the world and then how that then affected some of the things that happened on later later on in the book yeah i really appreciate it your um just your honesty and you a book you reference and even speaking about um about your journey and the writing process was um writing into the wound um but you also you also mentioned something about um dignity and that's something that you learned from your grandmother and a song that she would often sing is I've got my dignity to keep me warm can you talk a little bit about um that dignity that you learned or um, those lessons, a little bit more about those lessons that you learned about who you were as a person um, from your upbringing, from your grandmother and from your immediate family? Yeah, that's such a great question. So growing up in a small, again, rural, predominantly white <clears throat> town in Missouri, it would one would think, oh, well, because I was surrounded by whiteness that somehow maybe I didn't have mm -hmm. as much of a black identity 
blah 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 and for me that that's not at all true where i where i grew up we there was a black community albeit it was very it was very small we were outnumbered 50 to 1 in our in our town of less than less than 10,000 people um but we but we had a small community we had we had a church um now there are multiple black churches they're they're all small but there are multiple black churches um in the town but whenever i was growing up there was just the one um until i was like in high school there was just like the one black church in town there was a park that was that was where the black people would congregate there were a couple of streets in the town that a lot of the black people either lived on one street or the or the other street and so all of that was formative for me so you know a lot of so it was almost like there was there were these two different worlds that i that i navigated that i that i traversed there was the world of whenever i was in school there was the world and so with so school and the world kind of around that because my mom uh worked for for my school district she's a speech language pathologist and worked at my school district and so she had all of her teacher friends and their kids and so some of their kids were some of my peers and so there was that world that i traversed and then on the other side of that at my grandmother's house at our church in the park um all those all those places that was the black world and we that we watched black tv shows um we watched i mean we watched the white tv shows and stuff too but there was yeah. but i had i had such like there was i had this joke with with one of my friends growing up that like who was who was white that it was like literally i just i thought that there were shows and stuff that like only came on my tv um things things that that only so so it was very surprising to me whenever for instance like i like we, we were like i was a tgif person so like i watched family matters every mm-hmm. week urkel and them like we we watched urkel every week and so i just thought that that was something that my family watched i didn't realize that like other people were watching this show too <laughs> uh fresh we watched fresh prince of bel-air we watched we watched the cosby show um we watched different world um we we listened we listened to black music like that was like that we we had MT because we didn't have BET until like I was in high school so we had MTV on so I knew I knew like I knew white people exist I knew white music exists my family yeah. is very much appreciative of uh, all forms of music so I mean yeah I was listen I was listening you know to to Notorious B.I.G. and TLC and whatever but then. I was also listening to Guns N' Roses and Nirvana and and so it just it was a very it was just a very interesting um kind of mismatch mishmash of of culture and whatever but within that I always had this deep sense of being black is who I am and there was never a point in my life where I didn't know that I was black so I never so some people have this have an awakening where they're like and then all of a sudden I realized I was black. All of a sudden I realized I was different. A lot of people who, who grew yeah. up in similar contexts to me have that, have that moment. I did not have that moment. I always knew that I was black and that my family was black and that there were people who were not black and that being black meant that I was different, that I had different food, that I had different way that we talked, that we, that we did different stuff in church. Like I just, I knew that I, I knew that I was different. So then with that, with that then came a sense 
of a, a deep sense of appreciation, a deep, a, a profound sense of of pride in in who mm-hmm. I was and in what my culture was, and so then speaking to that component then of, of dignity, it was something that that was so important to me as as a black person, as a, as a young black person. And it's something that I that I came into even greater awareness of in seeing ways that Black people's dignity is often stripped from us. But there, but but for me, the sense of of dignity was intrinsically tied to my blackness, and it was something that that was that was very um, that was that was very deep for me. And and having this just this deep understanding. Of, of who I was and that it was something that I should be proud of. It was something that I shouldn't try to hide, that it was something even that, um, and this maybe kind of you know, crosses over a little bit into respectability politics and I've, and I've had to, mm-hmm. I've had to revise some of how I've thought about this, but realizing that oftentimes whenever I was in a space and I was the only one that I was representing everybody so I was so I, so I was representing you know the the eight other black kids eight or nine other black kids in my class whenever I was the one that was in the academic program um, I, I was the one that was showing what black people were capable of because I would be the the only black kid in the school or sometimes even in the school district who would who would be in who would be in certain spaces and so yeah that that made that made a huge difference and that and that dignity was just a was just a huge was a huge part of it So in the next act, you, you speak about something that you just you just kind of drew on, which was how that that dignity is often sh- stripped from us as black people. And, and you speak from the context of being involved in the church and your work in the church. Um, and you talk a lot about your work in the church uh, that you call living streams and how those experiences really shaped you. Um, and yeah, there's two things I'd like to like to hit on about that living streams experience. The first one I could really identify with because the same thing actually happened to me when I was interning at a white Pentecostal church years ago. Um, and it's your chapter about Barack Obama is the Antichrist. You know, you, <laughs> yes, <laughs> you, yes. you, all, you all have to read that chapter. But in that, you speak about, you know, after Barack Obama won, the president was elected president of the United States. That next day, someone that you worked alongside at the church you were at says, I believe Barack Obama's Antichrist, which you really used to springboard to talk about how white people refuse to submit to black leadership. Can you share a little bit a little bit about how sometimes in those spaces, um, black dignity, black people's dignity is kind of stripped away by always seeking permission to lead in those spaces? Yeah, you know, it's so wild because it's almost like at least my experience, and I say I I don't even know why I'm I'm qualifying that because I know that that many others have had very similar experiences, where there is not a, a sense of trust from white leadership, and so there's always this kind of unspoken fear of that that you're somehow going to break something, 
that mm-hmm. that there's and it, and it's this dual it's this this multifaceted kind of fear because on the one hand it's like if you're the first person and it, and it uh, living streams I was the first and I was the only so if you're the first person who is breaking into an institution that had been historically racist which was true which was also true for living streams that that, that there's this hyper awareness by leadership that 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 could that's going to shake up the status quo and that's going to upset people who are invested in that status quo so there's a desire and and i think that there's wisdom in wanting to wanting to manage something that can be a big that can cause a big shakeup. wanting to manage that gently i don't i don't begrudge a leader saying oh you know hey we, we've made a controversial hire here or we've done something like that and so and so we need to try to manage this gently to keep everybody from freaking out and to keep this person from being harmed but then what that but then with that often that the other layer of that too is that there's still that internalized bias that a lot of people have that racism that a lot of people have that yes they 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 want you to be in the space and sometimes they want you to be in the space because they don't want to be called racist so they find a way to elevate you so that they so that way they can feel like that they're not being called racist and so there's that layer of it too and so then there's but then there's also the layer of I still, I'm a leader, I still have bias. And so like, is this person really capable? Like, yes, she's she's the cream of the crop for a black person, but is she really capable? Can she really, can she really lead? Can she really do these things? And because she doesn't know all the cultural stuff, she doesn't have all the, all the cultural stuff here, is she gonna break something? Is she gonna is she gonna mess something up? Is she gonna is she gonna cause controversy unnecessary unnecessarily? Like there, there's there's all these different kind of things that that pile up, and what that then does, how that then strips black folks of their dignity, at least the way that it worked for me, is that it's like okay cool, it, it looks like people think that I'm capable of doing something because I'm here. Um, you know, I'm 22, 23 years old, and I'm on staff at this at this church. So clearly, they think that I'm talented. And there's and there's other people. There's other people that they could have that they could have um, set up to 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 do some of the things that I was doing. But but no, okay, I was I was the chosen one. Okay, great. So that that feels great. But then I'm I'm in here, and I'm looking, and it's like. I'm not getting some of the same, some of the same treatment, some of the same benefits, some of the same um, presumed competence or whatever that other people are getting. And is it so? It's like, is it my age and inexperience, or is it because I'm black? And then as you kind of go along, and as you prove yourself, and as you're showing people that you're capable and that you're competent and that you're and that you're not going to break things. But then you're constantly, people are constantly, um, people are constantly like putting you in bubble wrap, like putting, putting training wheels on, putting, putting fences and stuff around you. For the longest time, I internalized that as an issue with me. I was like, well, maybe I'm not as capable as I thought I was or and then whenever the talk is you know yeah you know we we want to have a diverse church you know or and it doesn't have to be a church it can be any institution you know we want we want this we want this organization to be diverse we you know we whatever and so then it's sort of like okay so am, am I here because of my skin color and that's it 
like that's like mm-hmm. like about here just because but then but then you're telling me that you think that I'm competent and you tell me that you think that I'm great but then like you're not I'm not really like I'm getting opportunities but I'm but I'm there's just like this it's there's this tone to it whenever it's and it's hard to describe unless you've experienced it yeah. unless like you've really experienced it it's hard to put into words but it's like whenever you see people whenever you see people who are less experienced than you who don't have the same level of position as you in the organization getting to do things that you don't get to do being considered for things that you're not being considered that you're not being considered for and it it, it starts to wear on you a little bit and there was a, a point where I really for a long time I looked at myself like I must just be this really horrible problematic leader like I must be somebody who has a lot of promise and that's why people are investing in me but I'm not I'm not really like that great and so and it was it was just it was it was it was a very difficult experience um and of course like some of this some of this I go into in the in the book and some of this I don't but just in in life that was such that was such um a, a difficult a difficult experience to be in that space and to constantly be questioning myself. And then eventually I realized like, no, this isn't, this isn't me. This is, this is them. This is, this is these people. This is these, this is these leaders. But that, but that took a long time um, for me to be able to get to. And honestly, um, if I, if I keep it really real, you know, there's, there's times even um, that I have to that I have to pep talk myself today and be like like no like this is happening like like this isn't happening the way that you think that it's happening like yeah hmm. wow yeah and you know I thank you so much for sharing that because and, and what I really appreciate about your book is 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 that realness that that you share you're vulnerable you share your experience. And I think there's a lot of people who can really identify with that and those experiences. And you talk a lot about that gaslighting that takes place and those mental gymnastics that we go through of trying to figure out like, well, I felt called here. I I have relationships here, but how do I navigate this terrain of either feeling like somebody's, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion initiative? Like you're just doing this because you think it's the right thing to do at this time. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of now put me on display and you talk about it from the pulpit all the time. Well, look at this. You know, we're more diverse than we were three years ago, which is great. But but, you know, why and for what? And when I when I've kind of been asked to speak into those things at churches, I always ask that question, like, why now? And are you and you kind of confront that? Are you willing to confront what led this institution to look like this in the first place? Because if you're not, which you, you really hit on in your diverse don't mean free chapter right like we may prize diversity but are people's voices really welcome into those space some but spaces is there freedom to actually exist in these spaces and so um i really appreciate it that you've laid that out because it gives a, a good roadmap for people to think through um you speak about you speak about how your faith and i want to i want to read this quote you says you say i have remained christian even after my experience in the white church because I don't blame brown skin Jesus for white people's racist behavior. Racism is some white Jesus nonsense. For centuries, black people have chosen to worship a God who promises freedom from oppression. I refuse to see something to whiteness, something that didn't start with them and doesn't belong to them. Um, can you talk a little bit about 
when and maybe it really started with like you said what you gained from your family and your community and the churches you grew up in but when you really came to this reality is that that Jesus is not necessarily this white man that I've been worshiping that approves of all these things that have been happening to me and how would you encourage somebody who's going through that process and maybe maybe considering kind of walking away from their faith yeah that's a great question you know I think that um in the current climate that we're in and particularly as Christian nationalism has come to the forefront, as Christo-fascism has come to the forefront of our uh, public discourse, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. there are, it has a lot of people, a lot of people kind of rethinking who they are, rethinking their affiliations, their connections. And so within the black community, there's always kind of been this strain of, well, why would I want to be a Christian? That's a white man's religion, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. Um, but I think that we've seen that, um, that we're seeing that re-up in a way where it's people, where it's not just people who are outside of the church who are saying that, but it's people who are within the church who are, who, or who have been part of churches, who have you know, served in leadership in churches, in white churches, who are saying, uh, you know, this is like, like I guess uh, I'm out. If this is, if this is, yeah. if this is it, I'm out. I'm done. And honestly, I am very thankful for the upbringing that I had in the rural black church. Um, my church experiences growing up. Thankfully, I, I myself was never harmed like I was never I was never like you know abused in any kind of way I never really experienced any direct type of harm but I but I bore witness to different things that that happened in some of the churches and stuff that I was involved in um and so that's so I say that to say that black churches obviously are not perfect they're not they're not these sinless havens of whatever there's a there's a lot of janky stuff that goes on in black churches but i'm thankful for the the faith that i was able to forge in the place of where it wasn't it wasn't mega church christianity it wasn't even like we're trying to be a mega church we didn't even have the concept of of mega church you know whenever you're you're in a town of you know less than 10,000 less than 20,000 people like what is big i remember moving to springfield missouri where i where i went to college and i remember going to these churches that had like 50 and 100 people and thinking oh my gosh this is so big i've never <laughs> seen this many people in ch- in church in my life where mm-hmm. like you know the churches that i had grown up in um had maybe like you know, on a good sunday like maybe there would be 50 people there um but but even the church that that, that i spent a lot of my time um in middle school in high school in I mean if we got like 20 people on a Sunday it was like woo revival yeah um so I so I just had so the the faith that I that I forged in those spaces it was just it was completely different from the Christian from the white Christian evangelical industrial complex and so the the God that I that I learned about was the God that heard people who were being oppressed that that was there for the people who were enslaved that was that was with 
our our elders because because when I was you know a kid, a lot of them people was still was still alive uh, during the civil rights movement and stuff. It was it was the God that was that was with them during that. It was the God that was with them when they couldn't pay their light bill. Um, it was the God who was with them whenever their car was was acted up. Um, that was that was the type of faith that I was baptized into, hmm. and so then. It was very easy for me to compartmentalize that, that like like the you know, the black the black church the rural black church like that's that's my mother tongue. Um, so then whenever I went entered into some of these white spaces, there were things that I just didn't understand that I didn't quite have to have that I didn't quite have context for, that I had to kind of learn about and then just kind of be like okay huh that's interesting, and kind of go on with so so it was very easy for me once I was like. I'm done. I'm done with being in these white, you know, Pentecostal, charismatic, non-denominational, evangelical, adjacent, or even or now mm-hmm. evangelical, but weren't in the 2000s. Would not consider themselves evangelical in in the slightest. Once I kind of washed my hands of being in those spaces, and I didn't leave my Pentecostal faith behind, my charismatic faith behind, um, but I but I washed my hands of those of those particular spaces. I'm an, I'm an Episcopalian now, which that's a whole other different story. That's a whole other different book. Um, that's, a, that's a whole other different, different book. I'm, I'm hopefully one day will be ordained as an Episcopal priest, but that's a, that's a hmm. different story. But but I still consider myself in a lot of ways to be Pentecostal and charismatic. But once I was able to kind of just be like, I'm done, I'm, I'm done with, the, with, with this, these brand of white folks. And I actually, I, I'm an Episcopalian, but I attend a black Pentecostal church that is a black church so i don't attend a white episcopal church and i'm not around white people and whiteness and and whatever because i I wouldn't i would not have done that um but i'm in a black pentecostal or a black episcopal church and so being just just washing my hand from those spaces and just being like okay i can i i was able to in a way kind of it it was almost like coming back to yourself in a in a way because it was like i always knew that that their brand of Jesus, their brand of Jesus never really resonated with me deeply. Like there were, like the things that, that I resonated with in those churches was was some of the worship. It was because it was the lack of diversity of where I where I was living at the time that 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 was where the connection was. It was the hope of I, I it was you know and I talk about this in the book of wanting to spread my wings all those things. I talk about why I entered into the white church space. I talk about that a little bit a little bit in my book in my book, but the the, the white man's religion the the white the white Jesus was was never somebody that I could really be buddies with. He huh. wasn't somebody that I, I never saw white Jesus as my as my savior. He was he was white people's version of Jesus. And and, and practically what that meant for me was okay, yeah, you know, the, these white people look at issues like abortion. They look at issues like diversity and inclusion. They look at them from a place and at the time you know, I didn't even have the language for it, but I recognize like you're looking at this from a from a lens of never like actually really having the types of experiences that would that would lead you to make certain decisions. So like you're not to get too heavy into it, but like with abortion, 
I grew up in Christian family, families that, that was believers, whatever. And in my community, abortion was understood as a way of preserving somebody's future that they would otherwise lose if they had a child at 15, at 15 years old. And, um, and not everybody who, who was sent to the abortion clinic got an abortion. Um, but there were some people who decided not to and decided to, and just decided to have their kids, but it was never like spiritualized in the way that I saw in the white church. It was never, it was never this issue that then that we're gonna that's gonna affect how we vote in a, in a presidential election like it was it was never i i never heard that where where i came like where i came from in church it was my white friends at their white churches that whenever the, the issue would come up in like you know social studies in high school that they would be arguing and i'm like and they'd be like yo well jesus and i'm just like i didn't i don't even think i didn't realize that the bible even said anything about about this like my 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 pastor's not talking about this on Sunday like we're not we're not preaching about this in in my church we don't we don't have these types of views so it was very easy um to kind of be like once you know, it was kind of like on the Wizard of Oz like whenever whenever Toto like goes around and he finds the wizard um behind the behind the curtain and the wizard's all like oh there's not a don't look at the man behind the curtain or whatever and like Toto like cubs like and like you know is pulled on him and whatever like you know once I was sort of like like you know, all the all the smoke and mirrors of the the literal smoke in some cases or literal like <laughs> haze machine fog machine of the white evangelical church once it's like oh okay you mean because you know how, like in wizard of oz like you, you said there, there's fire there's like there's pyrotechnics there's all this other type of stuff but then he realized it's just a dude behind a curtain and it's smoke and mirrors and it was and it was like it was literally like the wizard of oz where i was just like oh so like y'all are just out here this is like this isn't there's there's no substance to this Mm -hmm. like everything that y'all said that y'all stand that y'all stood for y'all threw that on the ash heap on november 9th 2016 y'all just said y'all just said all the integrity all the character counts all this stuff y'all just said well never mind and threw that on and threw that on the garbage heap and I was just like, oh, okay. So like, how can I possibly trust that y'all y'all thought that y'all had the Holy Ghost? Y'all thought that y'all, and I'm not saying they didn't have the Holy Ghost. I'm not saying that I didn't catch the Holy Ghost at their church. But what I'm saying is that like, hmm. y'all really thought that y'all had Jesus on the main line. Hmm. But then whenever it came to electing a person who was corrupt in many obvious ways versus some of the people who actually stood for the values that you claimed for from the from the their party. It was just sort of like, bruh, like this is just this is a bunch of this is a bunch of smoke and mirrors and like y'all don't really y'all don't really believe this. Y'all are willing to massage your theology to fit whatever is politically expedient for you you don't you're not really following jesus of nazareth you're following jesus of like i don't know jesus you're following jesus of springfield missouri you're following jesus of houston Houston, texas you're following you're following jesus of new jersey like you're not you're not following 
the brown-skinned dude who was a victim of state violence and and I mean and, and there's more that I can and there's more that I do say about it about that in the, in the book but it's just like yeah that was just a that was just a moment a lot of that was just a was just a moment for me where I realized like I don't need to be with these people I can love them as as uh siblings in Christ but like but then also that doesn't change what I know about my Jesus like that doesn't like it wasn't like so so 2016 wasn't like this moment seeing how people responded because even before then you know Trayvon Michael Brown all that Mm -hmm. type of stuff seeing white Christians response to that didn't do anything to my faith because my faith was not rooted in those in those systems I I did not I did not believe there, there was, there was never a point in my, in my existence that I ever felt that the culture wars were a viable thing. And in fact, because I was a youth pastor for many years, I was like, whatever. And, and there were times that I honestly like tried to not subvert in like a, a deceptive or mean or like whatever kind of way, but where I just tried to be honest. I remember like the last youth group that I, that I pastored, um, I and I would not have done this if it if the, if this if the situations had happened in reverse order, but we were talking. But I, I was preaching one time and just something came because yeah, I was preaching and I just felt something drop in my spirit and I was like, any if anybody tries to tell you that they took prayer out of schools and that you can't pray out of school and that you can't pray at school, they're full of it because you can actually pray at school and I and I and I laid out for them what the law was and I was like your can your teachers lead you in prayer no because there might be other people can this happen this can 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 a school official do this no but you as a student have every right to exercise your faith at school well then, like a couple weeks later, pastor of the church was like, "They're taking the prayer out of schools." And I was just because like, I'm literally like anybody who tells anybody who tells you that you that you can't pray in school, they're full of crap. You can pray in school. And then, like a couple weeks later, probably like even a week later, the pastor of the church. Mm-hmm. They're taking prayer out of schools, and we got. I'm like, oh, oops. But if it, if it had happened the other way, if he had said that first, I never would have said that. I never would have said that that way. I would have been a lot more gentle, a lot more. I mean, I still probably would have been like, you can pray at school, but I would have been a lot more gentle in my delivery of that, and not told them that the people. I'm like, oh wow, I just said that the lead pastor here is full of crap. I saw my youth group that. Uh, I'm just telling. I'm just, like, I just tell them like you know, two weeks ago that anybody who says this, oh, you guys seem like you're full of crap. Um, but it, 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 it kind of was full of crap. But anyway, that's yeah. a, that's a whole other story. Um, but yeah, so it was just like I like, yeah. There was just this, this whole just I just realized like my faith huh. isn't unto the same purposes. I'm not trying to do the same things. I'm not saying that everybody in those contexts are trying to do those mm-hmm. things, but I just it was just it was very easy for me to be like, 
oh i mean it just it was just literally like i'm like i'm changing the address of where of where i worship because i'm changing the address i'm changing a few a few things about like what sunday mornings look like for me and what and and how worship looks for me in some ways um but i mean i'm you know i'm, I'm an episcopal church but yeah i'm a, I'm a with my hands up and whatever the, I'm, I'm, I'm an amen whenever whenever the sermon whenever the sermon's good and like, like they, and they just and they just gonna have to deal with that um but because i because i because again i'm still pentecostal and so they're gonna have to <laughs> and, and they and they know that about me and that's great but like if so you know there's things that there's little things that have changed right but it's just like but but my Jesus didn't Jesus didn't change it it wasn't like oh my gosh everything that I fundamentally know about Jesus is like it's completely changing the expression and the understanding of my faith it was literally just like oh okay yeah the, oh oh hmm. I kind of thought that that was I kind of thought that that was bull and yeah it it appears that it is and so and unfortunately that's not everybody's experience but that but that was mine wow um, so y'all. Ali Henny, get the book, read the book, wrestle with the book, write through it, journal through it, pray through it, reflect on your own experience. Um, Ali, thank you so much. Uh, before you leave, tell us, tell our audience where they can they can purchase the book and where can they follow your work. Yeah, so you can you can get the book uh, pretty much wherever wherever books are sold. Um, so whether that's whether that's Amazon, if you uh, have a local bookstore and they don't have it ask them to order it and they'll order it and you can buy the buy it from them and they'll probably buy more than one copy so other people can buy it so that would be great um but you can also you can you can interact with my work um i'm on facebook it's just my name um if you type in like at ally henny page you'll see it's like a it's a, it's a public page not my personal page because i won't like i probably won't add you as a friend there um unless i unless we have <laughs> mutuals or whatever um or if i know if like if i recognize your name or whatever then I'll, like, I'll add you but I won't add you on my personal page um, but you can also follow me on Instagram at Allie Henny um, you can follow me on TikTok I get on TikTok um, I use TikTok a lot but I also make videos um, on occasion on TikTok and so you can follow me there um, at the Allie Henny you can also follow me on Twitter it's at the armchair com which is short for the armchair commentary which is also my blog www thearmchaircommentary.com I don't know why I said the www like it was 1998 but here we are um, also if you go to my website alliehenny.com um, you'll be able to connect to me in from most days I think my social media is not on there right now but I need to put it back on there um, but you'll be able to connect with the book and the, my blog and other things so yeah I think that that's everything oh and Patreon I'm also on Patreon um, I've been sick, so I haven't really uploaded anything to Patreon recently, but probably by the time that you hear this, that there's a lot of stuff there already, and I'll probably be back, hopefully, to uploading stuff regularly. So, yeah. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Before we get you out of here, we have this segment on my Black Book Journal called Reading Brings Me Joy. Um, what have you read lately that has brought you joy? Oh, my goodness. Let me think about this. Oh, oh, man. Man, what have I read? What have I read? Um, what have I read? So I do this thing on my personal um, Facebook page 
Um, <clears throat> but the posts are public, I believe, so you can engage with this. But I have this um, hashtag that is um, Shada, like a shot of, but Shada, H-O-T-T-A, Shada Henny Books. And mm-hmm. like, cause my last name's Henny, Hennessy, like I'm just playing, like, I, I don't know. Anyway, I'm, I'm sorry, like, I'm just, um, whatever. <laughs> carnal whatever but anyway so i have this so i have this hashtag called shot of hitty books where i read books and i do like some summaries of the mm. of the chapters like as as i read them and so like i did it started out um with i had read uh, the harry potter series for the first time and so i was like kind of responding to it and every and my friends were like oh my gosh i love your reactions to all these books as i'm just like talking about like whatever and so i was like oh this is this might be a fun thing so I, so i've read several books um and have some books i do just a summary of the whole entire book um some books i do like a blow by blow like with chapters so, so some some stuff is like fun like it's kind of a hate read so like i kind of hate read twilight but i'm still not done with twilight <laughs> yet but i was basically like reading it to make fun of it um but i recently finished this book called pastor needs a boo and it is mm. it, and it is by that title let me tell you this book is everything that you would think it would be just based on the title alone i can tell you it is it is all of that <laughs> and more it is it's like a, it's like an urban it's like not really urban but it's a it's a black christian romance novel but it's not a romance novel as in like a bodice ripper is in like you know you get description deep descriptions of people doing romantic acts it's not quite like that um but it was it was such a fun read hmm. um it was such a fun read it's unconventional but it was so fun and um it took me several months to to read this because i just for various reasons i was busy so i kind of picked it up and put it down but several of my friends were like because i also had because some books i will give their own hashtag along with the shot of henny books <laughs> um so uh uh Pastor Needs a Boo was Passes Boo Thing. Um, hashtag Passes Boo Thing. Um, and so I, I did a chapter by chapter, blow by blow of this book. And so, and like a lot of my friends were living for my updates um, on this on this book. And it was, it was so fun. It was just, it was such a fun, it was such a fun read. Um, it was such a it was such a fun read to kind of hear some of the black church stuff in it, but then mm. it wasn't like overly churchy. Um, it was just it was very it was very real. Like I don't I I don't even know how to describe it. You just it's I, I'm not saying that it is a literary masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> so I I don't I there there are a lot of rough edges with this with this book. So I don't want it I don't want to make it sound like you know that it's like War and Peace or something which I've never read War and Peace War and Peace might suck but I, I don't know um, it might actually be a terrible book I don't know but it's not like I'll say it's not like you know Pride and Prejudice which I don't think is a literary masterpiece either but that's what I got that's the best that I got um, right now so it's not a literary masterpiece but it is a but it, for me it was a fun read and so that brought me a lot of joy well thank you for sharing that with us Pastor Needs a Boo you all check that one out too um, recommended by Allie Henney. <laughs> Y'all, pick up her new book, I Won't Shut Up, Finding Your Voice When the World Tries to Silence You. Again, thank you so much for being a yes on my Black Book Journal. Thank you so much for having me. All right, y'all. Till next time. <laughs>